Good evening. We are back on our next event, quote unquote, with KK. And today I've got Rajiv Pishwaria, who has been an excellent thought leader in the space of leadership. Rajiv has worked in financial services, various big brands and companies like Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Morgan Stanley, and several other FMCG companies before he started on his own early 2010. And Rajiv has been credited in creating a leadership institute at Goldman Sachs as well. Rajiv has written several books and authored several articles which has been published in various magazines including HBR and Bloomberg and he's been on several television channels talking about the future of leadership and I'm glad to have Rajiv on the event today. Ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to roll back on a couple of issues which our previous speakers have talked about. One is that the future is going to be digital. The companies who are going to be the winners in the future are the ones who are going to embrace the digital way forward. And as we talk, we are also now challenged in embracing digital and opening up our offices and workplace. Certain surveys and certain discussions that I have had with some of the panel members and the attendees on this event who are few CEOs in from different sectors believe that work from home is going to be the future. And they are also challenged in terms of creating this hybrid workplace model, you know, work from office, work from home. And how do they now need to work forward? So with this background, I would love to bring Rajiv in to talk about our today's event from Lehman to COVID employment crisis, future of work leadership transformation. And I would love Rajiv to give his opening comments before we dive deep in various issues around the future of work and social and workplace transformation that our corporate leadership needs to now embrace and it's here to stay. Over to you, Rajiv. Uh, thank you, Kapil, and uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are uh, in the world. Great pleasure to be here. Uh, Kapil, you mentioned, uh, you know, future of work in the post-COVID. I want to just actually take a minute and go pre-COVID. You know, there's a question that I ask when I have live audiences around the world. Uh, and the first two questions, the first question I ask is, uh, raise your hand if you believe that life has changed dramatically in less than the last seven years. Uh, for all of us, both at home and at work, thanks to technology. And of course, everybody raises their hand, right? Let's say there are a thousand people in the room. Has life changed for you at home and at work because of technology just in the last five to seven years? Yes, 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 everybody raises. And so now answer the second question. Are the leadership and management practices in your company, in the way you lead and manage people, keeping pace with that change? And this time, nobody will. And I've been asking this question for the last two to three years now, all over the world. And never does anybody raise their hand in the second. So the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, everybody is talking about digital transformation. And there are three aspects of digital transformation. The third one, which is totally neglected. And that's just the topic of today's session. The first uh, everybody is talking about. So how should I disrupt? What is the digital disruption business model? Everybody is looking for the answer in their own industry. The second which technology platforms should I use? Everybody is maniacally focused. But what people management practice to change for us to have to make digital transformation successful? Very little attention. We are still using systems created in the 1950s. And now comes COVID 
And COVID has completely, you know, accelerated the pace of change, as we all know, with work from home and this, that and the other. And we are totally, in my opinion, unprepared for this challenge from a leadership, management and governance. Right. And that's the same challenge the leaders we have been talking to uh, through this podcast keep bringing on and on. You know, what's next? They themselves have not been through this sort of an experience in their own lifetime. So that itself is a challenge. It's a crisis at that level as well. Let me just roll back a little bit, Rajiv, in terms of asking you, how do you define an employment crisis in a country? At what point in time do you say that there is an employment crisis in, in, a, in a country? There are a lot of press articles and a lot of media buzz that the country is in employment crisis. There are not many jobs or whatever. Here we now talk. What accounting to you uh, would you say that a country is in an employment crisis? You know, uh, in terms of uh, a particular country being in an employment crisis, I guess the classic economic definition would be what has the average unemployment rate been in the country and uh, to what threshold has it broken? So it would vary from country. I think the important question, if I, if I understand you correctly, that you're trying to get at is that, you know, Yes, of course, we are going through an employment crisis because of COVID. And, uh, and even before COVID, digitization, while, while we all know the future is digital, you said that earlier, what does that mean for jobs? Uh, clearly, technology is destroying a lot of jobs, right? And the question is, what do we do? Now, I am actually not as pessimistic about this as most people are. People are saying doom and gloom that technology is destroying jobs and COVID is accelerating this thing uh, and COVID is not the last pandemic and this, that and the other. There's no. I, I actually, if you look back at history, you know, currently we are calling our times the fourth industrial revolution, right? But if you okay. look at the first, second and third industrial revolution, there is hope. Why? Because, yes, every turn of technology, whether first, second or third, destroyed jobs and destroyed industry. Yeah, when electricity was invented, if you were in the business of kerosene lamps, you were wiped out. When the auto, when the railroad was invented, if you were in the business of horse carriage delivery, you were wiped out. But in all three industrial revolutions, the same technology that destroyed jobs actually created much more jobs in the longer run. So there was a disruption for 10 to 15 to 20 years. And then actually many more jobs were created. I am quite positive that the fourth industrial revolution will do the same. Why? Think about it. Today, you want to hire a, a digital uh, marketing specialist, you can't find one. You want to find okay. data scientists, they're in short supply. Computer science undergrads coming out of colleges today are coming out with five job offers and before they finish their day. So if there is a displacement in terms of skills, but eventually I hope that the fourth industrial revolution will also create more jobs than it as well. That brings up to a secondary question, especially in India as well. We created a whole factory of IT engineers, uh, which did uh, the whole issue about outsourcing around Y2K and that bloomed into a big industry. And post Y2K, then post this whole BPO boom that happened, there were tons of people had to be reskilled. The second issue that goes back when I was also working with the union HRD ministry was that at least in India, the quality of engineers that were getting passed out were not of the right skills and matched to the right skills 
As a result, when I was at Wipro, we used to put these campus hires for a six-month training before they could be actually deployed on active projects, which is what uh, the corporate sector actually or the IT sector because of the boom and because of the business that was there in, in terms of IDs outsourcing actually took on upon them. Now with this whole COVID scenario and the corporate profits at, at their lowest and the need to hire more people and churn the existing people or reskill them, how do you think the corporate and the leadership is going to match up to these sort of needs and fund these skill gaps in the future? It's a it's 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 a million dollar question. Uh, you know, the rate at which our skills are going to get outdated is going to get faster. So you know, go, I think gone is the traditional career that I got out of college. I went to a master's degree and then I started a job at 55 or 60 or 65. I retire. Uh, and people, our generation, my generation, changed me three four jobs. Uh, I think those days are over. Um, uh, the rate at which skill extinction is taking place is going to accelerate. So. Uh, yes, uh, eventually those companies that help with the reskilling are the ones who are going to attract the smartest people and retain the smarter, smartest people. But I think the focus or the onus is also shifting on the individual. Uh, individuals or employees cannot wait for companies to give them opportunities to reskill them. They have to think ahead themselves. Okay, I'm in this job today. How long will this will it take for this job to be taken away by technology or by a cheaper market? Uh, and therefore, what's next for me? And I start reskilling proactively. Definitely companies need have the responsibility, but uh, I think individuals have to take the responsibility also. If we, if we leave it to corporate uh, sector, some companies will be better than others. That's a fact of life. But uh, I think everybody needs to get uh, uh, onto this proactive reskilling bandwagon. So let's not get into the numbers part, but the message is very clear that uh, it's the individual and some forward-looking companies and it's contingent on the corporate sector to find a solution to ensure that the employment is created with the new resources and the existing resources that they have and put them to better use per se, correct? For sure. One I of mean, the things yeah. now I wanted to bring up now is this whole future of work. How did it emerge? You've gone through the Lehman crisis you know how people lost jobs and, and the whole transition into people wanting to do a, a gig economy. How do you think this crisis from Lehman crisis is going to accelerate that and the current social distancing and the requirements to work from home is going to further enable and what are the kind of measures or countermeasures that organizations need to take? Leadership is still you know, unclear when they need to start office or what they need to do. So what are your key recommendations in what is going to stay in the new normal? So I think the biggest shift uh, yeah, when it comes to management and leadership of people is that, you know, for the last hundred years or so, uh, the corporate world has uh, operated upon management principles that were either created by a guy called Frederick Taylor in the 1920s. He was the father yeah. of modern management. He, along with Henry Ford, had this view that, you know, people are inherently lazy and in order for getting the maximum output, you have to control them. And then later on came uh, Peter Drucker. Both these people, although Peter Drucker was a bit more kinder, he introduced things like employee engagement surveys and the happiness of the employee. But make no mistake, for the most part, whether Frederick Taylor or the kinder Peter Drucker, the management systems were created for one reason alone, maximize control over resources <laughs> that we call human, right? And that was the basis of leadership and management, control, control, control. 
the biggest shift that in the digital world and, and accelerated by COVID is that we have to learn how to lead and manage with freedom. And the good news is that if you actually increase freedom for your employees, uh, my research says that actually productivity will not suffer. In fact, it will go up. I'll give you some basic numbers here. Okay. Now, there is an 80-20 rule all over the world, which says that 80% of the effects are because of 20% of the causes. So, Wilfredo Pareto found, told us this in 1906, whether it was crop production to modern day uh, software bugs, 80% uh, of the problems are caused by 20% of the software code. 80% of your sales are delivered by 20% of your salespeople, right? So, 80-20 is, is alive and kicking. In any company, in any work group, uh, the extension of 80-20 when it comes to human performance is 20-60-20, meaning 20% are top performers. They produce 80% of the results. 60% are solid citizens in the middle and 20% are bottom performers, right? Now, we make the mistake in management of expecting everybody to go above and beyond and do a fantastic job. That's not going to happen. It has never happened in history. It is never. What if we, and whether you like it or not, whether you are Goldman Sachs or whether you are a, a small cooperative bank in rural India, the bell curve of distrib distribution of performance is always going to be 20, 60, 20, right? Now, you may be hiring from Harvard or IIMA, so your uh, curve may be higher, but everybody is going to have a bell shape. What if we, if, we, if we legitimize this curve and tell people, choose where you want to be? If you are, want to be in the top 20%, your pay and your bonus and your promotability will be accordingly. If you want to be in the middle, your pay will be average. If you want to be in the bottom, and want minimum work, then you will get minimum pay. And you choose and based on that, we will pay and we are not going to micromanage. Now, what happens with this is the top 20% anyway say that I want to do the maximum. They take care of 80% of the results. So your bottom line is covered. It will not suffer. The remaining 80%, now that you have removed the false stigma of performance and had an honest conversation with them and an honest contract, I will give you this much, you give me this much. They will also work with more happiness and less stress, so your overall productivity should go up. In other words, leading with freedom is actually not a risky proposition. Uh, don't worry, production will not fall. People are finally learning that work from home was not bad after all, because now you can't can control them even if you want to. So can that's I, the basic principle. I hope that makes sense. So it makes perfect sense. So what we are really debunking is the command and controls and, and what we put together is now getting debunked and you're giving operational freedom to employees to perform and they are doing as well in the new normal and work from home without physical monitoring on their work and their performance, correct? You can bring a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. So correct. may as well pay for performance. If, imagine this conversation, right? Hey boss, I've been working you know, 12 hours or 16 hours a day for the last five years. I've given everything to this company. And thank you. You've promoted me. You've given me great bonuses. But you know, I just became a father. And for the next two years, I want to step off the pedal. Can I move to the middle of the curve and you can reduce my bonuses and don't promote me until I come back? Now, this is an honest conversation, right? But does it ever take place? Never. Now, take right. one click further. Boss, I want to be honest with you. I like this company, but this job is not my passion. Frankly, the only reason I want to be here is I want to pay the bills. My real passion is music. So can we agree, boss, that you give me minimum work in return for minimum pay? I don't want bonuses. I don't want promotability. And if I fall below the minimum, you can fire me. Another honest conversation that never takes. My point is, if you replace traditional employment contracts and performance management systems with such uh, honest contracts, productivity will go up. And you don't need to control. Excellent. 
I want to shift this conversation a little bit in the current crisis. The whole design for resilience of an organization is now being escalated to the forefront rather than the work on efficiency or focus on efficiency. And one is also realizing when you are balancing that with work from home and all the changes that are happening, and this is coming from several CEOs that I have spoken to in the course of the last few weeks, have really echoed, how do I design now a resilient organization and start focusing on how do I make this organization far more resilient in terms of its future operability? What models and what are your suggestions on how do an organization and the leadership transform the organization towards resilience? So, you know, the age-old principle that you have to attract, develop, and retain top talent, uh, that doesn't change. Whether it's the gig economy, whether it's the digital economy, whether it's the old economy. So the way to make an organization resilient is to have the best people and keep them happy and motivated. The question is, those top talents, those, those brilliant people, what kind of organization will they join and what kind of organization will they stay with, right? Because the resilience depends on whether you have the best people and they are motivated on. And that is where the shift has happened. And, and in the past, people used to take a job simply for what it paid. I need to make money, period. And I don't care what the company does. As long as it pays me uh, really well, I'm going to go work for them. I don't care what they produce. I don't care what they do. Those days are over. That was our generation. Today's millennial and younger generations, to them, meaning is more important than money. So therefore, to attract and retain the best talent, you have to stand for, a, you have to define a clear purpose for the company. What does this company exist for? And that purpose has to be larger than just maximizing shareholder wealth. And this is where the concept of stewardship comes in, meaning that you, uh, you companies that stand for uh, a purpose greater than shareholder wealth alone, there's nothing wrong with making the maximum profit and maximum shareholder wealth, but making the maximum profit doing what? That is what the talent wants to. And they want to align and stay with organizations that have higher purpose, the right kind of values, uh, and that takes care of other stakeholders as well. Uh, so, you know, and people say that I'm ambitious and I want to be the best and the brightest, uh, the biggest company in the world with the most profitable company in the world. I usually tell them, okay, give yourself one more challenge. And that challenge is to be the most profitable and biggest company in the world by doing something good that the world wants. Now, that's when you will create resilience. You will attract that kind of talent. And the other point I would make on this one is you have the values that most companies have, which are posters on the wall, make them matter. When push comes to shove, you know, role model will living those values. And now you're going to create a resilience because people will look towards values in the time of crisis and say, we know what to do. Uh, a bit of a long-term view rather than short-term. A colour to that also, I wanted to probably understand from you because this whole thing would be now to drive competitive organization or competitive advantage in the new digital era, right? Creating a resilience and, and matter for whatever your values, you're also now transforming your organization into the new normal, the, the whole new digital era and creating certain skills to drive that competitive advantage. Most of the leaders and CXOs are fairly underdeveloped, or I would say not clear how to drive this organization and this dichotomy forward. What would you recommend to them? So, you know, uh, when it comes to competitive advantage, uh, there are two sources mainly. One is uh, innovation, product or service innovation. So you come up with something that others don't have, that's your competitive advantage. 
But in the digital economy, what happens is that source of competitive advantage is very short lived. It takes your competition six months or less to come up with a similar product or service or even better because uh, there is no such thing as private or there's no such thing as 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 as, as uh, uh, copyrighted uh, IP and things like that. Uh, the moment it leaves your keyboard, it's out there, out there, right? So 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 product service innovation is important, but that as a competitive advantage, that's almost like a, uh, the price to be to pay to be in business. It's not a competitive advantage, long term sort of competitive. So what is a long term? I argue that the long term source of competitive advantage left is your culture, and you have to strengthen your culture. Uh, in a way that it performs, that it deals with crises, deals with situations better than others, and uh, and, 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 and encourages employees to give their very best uh, day in and day out. And that brings back to the earlier conversation of purpose. Unless the purpose of the company is not uh, uh, hitting the heart, uh, they will not be dedicated enough. Because at the end of the day, you know, we don't know what tomorrow's problems are. Things are changing so fast. So uh, agility, learning agility is a key skill. And uh, if your culture is one that uh, that 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 uh, encourages that kind of behavior, uh, and it's based on those values, now you will solve almost any problem, and therefore you will be more resilient than others. And you see examples of that all around today, even during uh, the COVID crisis. Exactly. That also brings up to a point on dehumanization of employee, creating a culture of inclusiveness, and bringing a social face at the time of this crisis. What have you seen organizations doing about it? So, you know, we, we see two kinds of organizations, right? Those that were totally unprepared uh, and those that have prepared. Uh, of course, you can't prepare for every black swan event, but uh, well-stewarded company. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm in Singapore right now and I work for Tomasic. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tomasic's response to, if I may say so myself, uh, the COVID crisis for people in Singapore and actually even in neighboring countries has been tremendous. From of supplying ventilators to supplying this and to supplying that and to just working hand in hand with governments has been absolutely phenomenal. And they have been, uh, A, they were very well prepared. B, they had, you know, uh, they, they've always prepared for a difficult time. Uh, up above a certain hurdle rate, they've been putting away money, which comes in handy. And they are not the only ones. There are many such organizations organizations around the world. And then you have the opposites, which are absolutely not prepared because they never looked at the future uh, and never looked at, uh, you know, uh, took a longer term view and took a view of uh, uh, what you may call it, uh, 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 you know, that there is uh, something called uh, being long term focused or there's a term on Wall Street that we used. In, I never liked it, but it was called long term greedy. Don't be short term greedy, be long term greedy. Uh, point being that you have to prepare, you have to uh, uh, think long term. And you have to try, uh, maximize long-term value. And that's the key. And that, that's the difference that we are seeing, that some, some organizations have done that and they are bearing uh, the brunt of the crisis much better than others. Rajiv, I have a question uh, from uh, the audience. Let me just take one question here before we go back into our conversation. It's saying, what sort of bottleneck demand and supply gaps or skills is required to bridge this new normal? So, you know, that is a question, <laughs> with due respect, it's almost impossible to answer because the very nature of the skills required tomorrow is changing so fast. Uh, they say that, you know, half of what you learn in an undergraduate engineering degree, if you come out today, will be out started today. 
will be outdated by the time you're in your third year. So that's how fast things are changing. So depending on the industry, there are many different things, uh, many different skills that are required. You have to answer this question or rather try to answer this question industry by industry. Uh, but I can say in, ge in general, uh, you know, uh, the, the one skill that we, the one sort of not skill, one sort of ability that we look at uh, while hiring people these days is how agile is this person and how quickly are they able to unlearn and learn new as it appears because companies like google for example you know they have this idea of uh, fail forward and fail fast meaning they will try and the same thing in the life sciences sector that we that's exactly right so you know you, you you try 20 things 18 of them will fail but that's fine the two that do well you will pour more resources into that so we don't know how the, the future as it unfolds you can only have some idea for your industry and prepare for it only that much but uh, this is where hiring and, 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 and retaining the smartest people. Smartness is today measured mostly through learning agility. So there is a thing about coming back to our topic. Rajiv, what were your learnings when you went through the Lehman crisis? You were at that point in time gone through and I, and I remember you talk about some of those experiences that you went through on the leadership and developing leadership also at Goldman Sachs. What were your experiences and what are the key messages that you can give to our audience here in terms of the crisis at that point in time and how the leadership rose up to that occasion and was sustained through the crisis and, and got out of it? I guess those learnings would be also fairly relevant to the audience here who are on our chat. And I think that we could probably draw some parallels there. Yes, and they are equally relevant in today's crisis, uh, you know, uh, 12, 13 years later. So I was at Morgan Stanley at the time in New York. And a very interesting, quick story. So, you know, when you talked a lot about Lehman today. Uh, so that Sunday night when, when, when Lehman went down and, and Merrill was bought over by Bank of America, right? That Friday, night, uh, Friday before that Sunday, uh, Morgan Stanley stock had closed at $55. And that Sunday, those two banks went down. On the following Monday, uh, uh, our stock started plummeting, right? And by the end of the week, the following week, it closed at $6.71. So from 55 on Friday, the following Friday, it was $6.71. So one week has gone since Lehman and, uh, and uh, Merrill uh, have perished. And the expectation in the market was that the following Monday market morning when the markets open, the next firm to go is, uh, is Morgan Stanley. And I think if I, my memory serves me right, at that time, even Goldman had hit an all-time low of $49. Uh, and uh, everybody was expecting uh, Morgan Stanley to go. It was a classic run on the bank situation. Uh, we were running out of money, which is what happened to right? So the whole week after Lehman, Morgan Stanley was trying to find a buyer to buy a stake into Morgan Stanley because if he could have deposit a certain amount of money in the New York Fed before Monday morning market opened, we would be fine. And so John Mack was the CEO at that time and he and the team were working round the clock finding a suitor who could take a uh, uh, a 20, 15 or 20% stake uh, for a certain amount of money. And uh, first they talked to the American banks, nothing happened. And they talked to the Chinese banks, nothing happened. And now it is Saturday and the following Monday, we are expecting the collapse, right? And uh, uh, they are working very closely with the deal with MUFG to uh, take a major stake in, uh, in, in the company. And that day, uh, the phone rings on John's desk and three people were on the line. Ben, um, Hank Paulson, outgoing Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, incoming Treasury Secretary, and uh, Ben Bernanke, right? And they basically said to him, uh, John, we can't have the markets open on Monday morning uh, 
before a solution. Uh, so we need a solution to, to your firm now. John says, translate. He says, we need you to sell the firm. He says, what are you saying? I've tried. Nobody. I'm working very hard and very well. There's an 80% chance that by Monday morning, we will deposit a check of $9 billion to the Fed and everything will be fine. No, John. Uh, Tim Geithner was doing all the talking. Uh, 80% chance is not good enough. We need 100%. And they, what do you want me to do? I'm doing my best. He said, call Jamie Diamond. He'll buy you. He said, but I spoke to Jamie three days ago and he doesn't want to buy. Why should he? No, no, no. Call him again. We've spoken to him. He'll buy you now. And uh, suddenly it dawned upon John what happened, what they are saying. Basically, what they were saying is do the same thing that Jamie did with Bash Turns a few months ago, which means he will buy you for $1 a share and he'll fire 40,000 at least. He doesn't need another 40,000 bankers. Right? So it dawns upon him that all the employees will not only lose their jobs, but their wealth, which is mostly in Morgan Stanley stock, will also go. Now imagine the three most powerful people are calling the CEO of a bank and they're saying, I'm calling him on behalf of president. You better do what we are. John, by this time, almost shaking and sweating. He puts the phone on mute for 30 seconds, shakes his head, doesn't talk to anybody, puts the phone back on again after 30 seconds and says this, gentlemen, what you're doing for this country makes you patriots. You please continue to save the country. But I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I may go down, but I'm not going to do what you're asking me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Can you imagine this? This is a true story. Uh, I wrote about it also in my first book, by the way. Uh, but uh, the question is, how could he the most important decision of his life within 30 seconds without consulting him? He didn't say, give me a few hours, I'll call my board meeting. He straight away said no. The reason I, I shared this story is that... Uh, there is a big leadership lesson here. He basically asked himself two questions. And that lesson is valid even today in today's crisis. The two questions were, what is my overall purpose? And how does this, what they are telling me, fit in with that overall purpose? And the answer is very clear. My purpose is to save Morgan Stanley. Their purpose is to save the country. And I am not going to waver from my purpose. And I believe that we are going to save Morgan Stanley. Then he asked his second question, what are my values? And what do the, if I act according to my values, what would I do? And the answer was loud and clear to himself. 40,000 people and their families have put their faith in me and my leadership at the time of this biggest crisis ever. I'm not going to save my skin and sell them outright. So I stay and I do what's right by my people. The point I'm trying to make is when you have crisis, there are only two things that help you. And one, and those two things are very honest clarity about your values, because those values tell you what to do, and a purpose in life based on those. If you have those two things, any crisis, you will come out as a shining example of great. If you are unclear about those two things, even small crises will be enough to do. So that's what I would say in terms of the key learnings from that crisis. I think that's an excellent mantra for the audience here in how to emerge out of a crisis. You talked about a lot of acquisitions and mergers in your story, and that brings up my next point. Like the Lehman crisis, the streets are also predicting a lot of consolidation activity. The weakers will get acquired by the strong. And during these sort of churns, we have seen a lot of people getting fired. There's again an employment crisis there. And the whole organization also becomes far more complex because of whatever reasons of integration and, and post-merger consolidation. What's your message to the leadership? How to face this sort of organization complexity due to external activity of mergers or, or acquisitions that are going to happen? Well, the, you know, the, the, the numbers are clear. Uh, why do a majority of mergers fail? 
uh, why do a majority of mergers fail to achieve the so-called business synergies, uh, the economic logic on, on which the merger idea was based in the first place, right? And the valuations are done and this, that and the other. And yet, uh, a, a, a larger share of the mergers don't work. It's not because the economic logic was flawed. It was not because smart people were not running the companies. It's because of one thing, and that is the, 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 the lack of attention on post-merger integration, particularly from the culture side. So, you know, merging two companies is, is a very complex marriage, and each organization comes with a very distinct culture. And to say that, you know, we are going to put them together and we are going to have cost savings and we are going to have synergies of production uh, and market coverage is not enough. You've got to unite people around the, around the same set of values. You've got to unite people on the similar purpose. And you've got to, uh, uh, you know, address the culture clashes head on uh, and, 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 and merge even the culture. And that's the part that is not given the, maximum, uh, the most attention. And that's the biggest reason for, uh, for, for mergers. So focus on, on reducing the complexity, work on the synergies and ensure that the whole cultural acclimatization of both the companies is worked through at the leadership level, correct? Yeah, because what does your company represent to your customer? And if you have built your success over 50 years or 25 years or whatever, based on a certain promise to the customer, right? Now you've acquired another 20,000. Do they believe and live and breathe the same ethos? And if they don't, now your brand is going to get diluted. And going to, there's going to be internal clashes because of which productivity. Is. So both externally and internally, you're going to be in for trouble. So uh, the good news is that this thing can be managed. It just takes proactive leadership. It's not rocket science. It's just not, they don't pay enough attention. And the worst thing you can do is delegate this part to consultant. You have to do it yourself. So Rajiv, in terms of the crisis that is there, the employment, I know a, a few of my own ex-colleagues, some of my own batchmates from college are out on the road. They've lost their job. They are now struggling to bounce back. And they have been in leadership positions. Unfortunate turn of events for them. What's your mantra to them to emerge back as a leader in the new opportunities or in the gig economy if they want to be part of that mainstream and follow their, their calling? So unfortunately, you know, this question is tough because... You, if you start asking yourself this question, what can I do to bounce back after disaster has already hit, meaning I, your job is gone already, I think it's a bit, you have to ask this question five years earlier. When is my job going to be eliminated? Because, you know, at some point you are going to get outdated, even if you are the CEO. And you have to prepare for the next thing then. And uh, those who do it, they are very successful. Those who wait on death row until for the hammer to fall. Uh, unfortunately, it is too little too late, particularly if you are 50 plus. Very okay. difficult, very difficult to find another job. Uh, and, you know, people make the mistake of spending the first two years. Oh, I worked so hard. So let me take a long break and then I'll come back after a year. And think, No, no, no. You've got to prepare for this well in advance. And if you haven't, then I think you have to. There's only one opportunity left, uh, whatever age you might be, which is to embrace the game economy. Uh, you know, uh, the only strategy cannot be to find another job because jobs are going to get harder to find, especially as you advance in it. Uh, so you have to embrace the gig economy and ask yourself the question, what? The good news is today, you have a high-speed connection and you have a functioning brain, you can actually make money. You can put food on the table. That's the beauty of the gig economy. Put your experience to work. Figure out 
what is it that I can do in the gig economy? Oh, uh, and don't just put your eggs on the one basket because, you know, headhunters will not return your unless they have an assignment that they are working. Uh, you can network as much as you want. Again, if you have people in high places, they might help you out, but that doesn't work for everybody. Uh, so embrace the gig economy. What are some of the things? And, and for those people who haven't yet, uh, who are still gainfully employed, I urge them to start thinking about this now. Uh, how, what is my what, what is my bandwidth in terms of this job? What's going to be potentially my next job? Uh, and how can I reinvent? That brings up to the whole question of the new avatar in the work for future. The social media interaction and has becoming too much of, I see LinkedIn, and too much of personal branding, too much noise and very little content. What do you have to say to such people <laughs> who want to embrace on the gig economy? Well, you know, I, you're right about one thing that if you look at LinkedIn and you look at Twitter, everybody today is becoming, everybody is shooting videos of themselves and saying, friends, I want to share this. Or everybody is writing things that, you know, because, and there is fatigue. How many such things can you read and how many such videos do you want to listen to or watch in a day, right? So I think we, we, we obeyed, we, you're right, we're absolutely overdoing it. I don't watch 90% of the videos that people put of themselves. You know, it's so easy to put on your camera and say, hello, friends, today, the thought of the day I would like to share with you is this, that, and the other. I mean, LinkedIn is full of that. And my, uh, my advice, uh, oh, and the other thing is, you know, people get invited to share their thoughts on webinars and on, on panels when they were in the real world before COVID and all that. And they'll put on LinkedIn, oh, so uh, 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 I, I am so humbled by the opportunity and the invitation to be presenting at so-and-so panel, uh, blah, 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 and this, that, and the other. Well, if you're so humbled, then don't use the word humble, right? <laughs> uh, the point is that there is too much of that self-promotion going on and that is not helping. I would insist, uh, instead uh, suggest really taking a hard look at what is my and where in my industry uh, can I challenge conventional wisdom and do I have something different to offer? Only then people will listen. So, you know, Peter Thiel, the founder of uh, PayPal, he has this brilliant interview question that he asks when, when, he, uh, when he's looking to hire Ken. And the question is, what truth about your profession or industry do most people disagree with you on? What is one thing that is totally true about your profession or your industry or your service that most people totally disagree with you? Now, imagine getting hit with that kind of a question in an interview. 90% of the people cannot answer it. Oh, that's a very deep question. Let me think. Uh, only if you are a proactive innovator and, and the challenger of conventional wisdom are you prepared to answer such a question. And I urge everybody today to answer that question because if you want to take advantage of the gig economy, you want to remain gainfully employed, you have to challenge conventional wisdom. What is it about the industry that has become outdated? What is it that has never worked? And what needs? And if you figure that out, now you are ahead of the and you should always be two steps ahead. Ask challenge. You can't find the answer tomorrow morning, but keep losing sleep until you find the answer. Do research. Do some experiments in your current job so that you have that experience when the crisis you personally. Rajiv, that's a very excellent advice to the people who want to embrace gig economy. My personal experience, I want to ask you a question. A lot of people who come to me from social media, from you know different other recommendations from the industry or colleagues or ex-colleagues too. And one of the things I tell them, if you are so good, why don't you put your skin in the game? Work with money plus certain skin in the game, which could be stock ops or could be sweat equity or other ways of compensating you with performance. 
what's your recommendation to the people in this gig economy to embrace this sort of compensation models so you know uh, you're absolutely right because the traditional job in a big company with that safety net is going is shrinking even the biggest companies are reducing workforces because of technology but there is plenty of opportunity in the gig economy with startups and smaller organizations because you don't need large workforces in many industries anymore right so and the opportunities in the gig economy with startups and things like that is at least initially they are starved of capital so i would say you're absolutely right have some faith in yourself and you've been in a steady job for 20 30 years now take a bit of risk and you know if you're so confident and so good uh, put that sweat equity in or even put some real equity in uh, and uh, you know uh, get used to that idea uh, people in, in jobs have to start thinking like entrepreneurs while they are still in their job because there is no such thing as job security and you've got to literally construct your own job description so i, I agree with you uh, that's the mindset we because if we keep saying oh i can't take a pay cut i used to be at this level now my next job what will people think that you know i'm in a lower job eh, those days are over those days are over because today uh, uh, you know the, the nature of employment has changed excellent rajiv i want to ask you a very personal question your experience of moving from a corporate job you were a banker and you reinvented yourself into leadership coaching leadership training and you know becoming an author and doing a lot in space of consulting and in the gig economy how was your transition what was the leadership crisis you felt and a personal level leadership crisis you felt can you share some of those experiences to the audience sure. i'm sure uh, there are a lot of learnings here i don't know but i'm happy to share but uh, you know kapil i don't know if even you know this but i started life as a currency trader i know that oh, okay <laughs> so uh, you know 7 years into my uh, career as a banker and as a trader i i was reasonably good at it uh, uh, and you know those days when i was a trader it was supposed to be a very sexy job you know you're the guy who looks at all those multiple screens and makes million dollar decisions in uh, in nanoseconds wow cool uh you know trader was not a bad word uh, like it became in the leaven uh, but uh, i realized that uh, sort of I, i somebody helped me realize that that was not my calling in so i fell upon this uh, this current career uh, just as a as an accident uh, i i in those days you know uh, we are talking here late 80s uh, uh, late 80s early 90s i can't remember now we had in, invented a training game uh, to teach people how to trade connecting dummy reuters screens with a 486 pc remember those uh, in four corners of a hall and we would actually uh, beam fake news and rates and these four teams on corners would trade with each other using phones and hotlines this was pre internet long story short that became very popular uh, in the bank i used to work in at the time and that program was exported to many countries uh, and then one day the hr guys came to me and said why don't you give some talks on uh, run a program on bond mathematics and and trading and, ma- and markets and all that so i started doing that over and above my job i realized i started really, i really enjoyed it and then the then head of hr said to me you're missing your calling you better consider a role in this area so i consulted my friends and family saying i've got a job in hr and everybody thought i'd gone mad uh, you know screw loose who goes to hr uh, nobody supported it not even my family but eventually i listened to my own inner calling and i did it and it turned out to be the best decision i ever loneliest but the best decision i ever made and that was 25 30 years ago i don't uh, is in the mid 90s i made that decision and it has not only been the best decision it was the loneliest decision but i haven't done a day's job a day's work since because work is not uh, work anymore it's fun 
So I say the first learning for me is follow your heart. Then I realized halfway into my career as a uh, as a talent officer, as a learning officer, that you know uh, what will happen when I grow older. Uh, if all I do is arrange training programs for big companies, and one day I'll be laid off because somebody will be able to do this at half the half the price. Because at the end of the day, I am just an organizer. I bring in consultants and professors, and I organize the classroom. That's my job. So I decided that I needed to become a subject matter expert. So I started reading a lot on management systems and philosophy. And eventually, I told myself, so, okay, if I wanted to, if I got fired, and if I had to make a living, why would anybody pay to listen to me speak? And that's when the idea of writing books started. So I, I struggled very, very hard. I used to wake up at four in the morning for two whole years and write for three hours and then go to work. And every weekend I did that for two years. And that's how the first book was born. Point I'm trying to make is that I guess I got some good mentoring advice uh, that you have to take responsibility to reinvent it. And had I not written those books, had I not challenged conventional wisdom and offered a different perspective, I guess we wouldn't be talking today. Uh, so you, the, the learnings for me are A, follow your heart and be proactively uh, reinvent yourself to what you want to become. And we get too comfortable in our jobs. And then one day the job is gone. That is the big I think this itself is a message, you know, reinvent yourself, Constantly. learn Constantly. Along on the job and prepare for it. I think these are a few of the things that the future of work, people who want to enter or who will be entering need to start embracing rather than just be on LinkedIn and start to just be high decibel pitches and which, which nobody takes on. I guess this is a fine testimonial to how to be successful in this whole process per se. I mean, I've gone through my own calling and reinvention, so <laughs> I can't complain and I'm happy time. where I am. You know, somebody uh, who I respect a lot uh, taught me this lesson. They said uh, this word imagineering. You imagine mm -hmm. the future you want for yourself and then wow. re, re, reverse engineer it. And then they said the trick for success is not to know all the steps. Just take the first two. And if you do it with a genuine heart, then the universe will, 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 will push you along. And then the rest of the 98 steps will be easier. The reason people fail is not because they don't know the steps. They fail because they don't take the first two steps. They are scared to take the first two steps. So reimagine uh, imagine the future, reverse engineer it and take the first two. And then leave the rest. It will happen. Rajiv, before we close, I would love to get your parting comment on the future and the future of work and leadership. And what are you thinking of doing next? What's your Anything that you're coming out in, in, in your own writing or your next book or, or something that you want to share with the audience? Sure. I mean, you know, uh, I'll share two thoughts and maybe people will not agree with me, uh, but that's okay. And this is just to stir something. I believe that when it comes to the future of work post-COVID, too many CFOs as we speak around the world are making presentations to their boards as to how much money they are going to save on real estate. Because people are going to permanently work from 50%, 60%, 70%, and therefore this is how much we can save. I think we are declaring victory of work from home too early. And I know this is not a popular way. Everybody is talking about the virtues of working from home and how great it is. And see, we are not losing productivity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we don't know yet. We absolutely don't know yet. We have not even understood how to measure whether there is any productivity loss. Or now. Is the future going to contain some work from home? For sure. But is it going to be five days or seven days work from home? I don't think so. I think companies are going to realize over time as studies go on as to what the real implication of, of, 
always working from home. It's not as simple as. So don't jump into those conditions so quickly is my plea to all those CFOs. Hold your horses. Let's learn a little bit more. Okay, let it unfold. Some industries are already realizing that it's not as rosy. So that's point number one. Your other question is to what am I up to? Well, I am I am actually uh, for my next book uh, researching a pretty interesting topic. I am researching why do good people and good companies suddenly go bad or suddenly go rogue? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I spent 10 years in Malaysia and uh, we had this one MDB scandal, which some of your uh, listeners might be aware of, yeah. uh, which, you know, firms like Goldman Sachs and others were involved. And I know personally some of the people who were involved in that stuff. Now, their parents did not teach them. Their parents did not send them to Harvard Business School to become a criminal. Why does somebody as respected as a Rajat Gupta, for example, suddenly feel compelled to do something that he shouldn't have done? Now, he can deny it as much as he wants and justify it. But the fact is, 23 seconds after that board meeting, he made that call. So why do smart people who've come from good families, Enron, I spoke to the former CFO of Enron for two hours after he came out of jail. And he told me about what he learned in six years in jail about himself. And I asked him the same question. I said, did you go to school and college thinking that you're going to make a career out of crime? He says, heck no. Is that what your parents taught you? He says, heck no. I said, then what happened? People who brought Enron down were people like you and me who were taught to be honest. So what happens? Why do good good companies go rogue? And that's what I'm researching. And uh, I have a hypothesis and uh, I don't think we have time to go into it. But that should be part of another talk, I guess. uh, Once you are fully baked on to the whole research and the proposition. Rajiv, I really thank you for taking time out and talking to uh, us today. Very interesting about the future of work and how people need to embrace what sort of leadership they need to probably get into. It's a pleasure having you on the talk today. And I wish you all the best for your next book as well. Before we end, I just need to thank our team here, our organizers, sponsors for making this happen. Our talk and our chat is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as on Spotify. So those who have missed it can always replay and go back and tune in and hear Quote Unquote with KK. Thanks a lot, Raji, for participating in this chat. Very enchanting, as always. I always take back a few nuggets of wisdom, as always, you know, talking to you and interacting with you. It's been a pleasure hosting you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure's all been mine. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks and bye.